0: something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this fresh episode, we are talking with Michael Perry, also known as Mr. Plant Geek, a multi-hyphenate in the plant world. You know, he's adept at many roles in horticulture. Michael is a TV presenter, speaker, hortpreneur, and author of Hortus Curious, a visual menagerie of the weirdest and wackiest plant species. Michael got his start in new product development at Thompson & Morgan before quickly working his way up to becoming an authoritative voice knowledgeable in all areas of horticulture. Having presented guest slots on ITV's This Morning and Channel 4's Stealth's Packed Lunch, He regularly speaks at RHS, flower shows, and industry exhibits across the globe. Michael's focus is on the fun side of gardening, with an emphasis on new plants and trends. He encourages and nurtures the new generations of gardeners. This is episode 127, Mr. Plant Geek's Botanical Adventures, with Michael Perry. Michael, what plants are people absolutely going crazy over now? Circus. Circus,
1: in particular, Eternal Flame, it won the Chelsea Plant of the Year two to three years ago now, but I see in the trade that there are many Circus now available, lots of different leaf colours, there's even double flowered forms as well, and I really feel like Circus is a movement, and the public really knows this now, it's a really compact, small tree. It's also potentially used as a larger shrub, or it's great for containers. And despite its exotic look, it's remarkably drought tolerant as well.
0: Yeah, that's a native tree for us. It's, uh, it's called a redbud, is, mm. is what we call it. And, and it's in our native forest here. So yeah, it's, it's a very exciting tree. And I know they've worked a lot with that mm. and developed a lot. I know you like to have fun things in the garden. Tell us about a fun plant that you like.
1: Fun plants. Well, I've written a book all about new, different, unusual, strange plants. So I always want to include something different. At the moment, I'm really into Hydrangea paniculata. Lots of different types of those which change with the seasons rather than the different types of soil. I'm always, because of my kind of plant selection heritage, I'm always looking for those slightly different ones as well. And I know there's a variety called milk and honey that actually has a fragrant bloom as well. So the nectar kind of has this really wafty little fragrance too. Yeah, thinking a lot about hydrangeas at the moment. In terms of more unique plants that you can play with in the garden, I'm a big fan of another plant that I think might be a native for you guys, which is Physostegia virginiana. This is the obedient plant where you can move the little individual florets into place. And the other one that I'm obviously obsessed with, but I've never tried in real life is the dictamnus, the burning bush, the one that can spontaneously combust. So a lot of these plants are ones that we can easily grow in the UK, but they also feature in my book, Hortus Curious, which kind of covers all of those strange plants that are sometimes really exotic, but other times they're just grown in our own gardens as well. I think all plants, even normal ones, have got amazing stories as well because of everything that they do or they rely on creatures for pollination and uh, plants will fascinate me every day of the year.
0: I was surprised to find out that you don't grow hosta in the UK. Why is that?
1: Hosta? Well, when I was in Minneapolis and we went around these wonderful gardens, it was really quite eye-opening to me when I said, we can't grow hosta because they get eaten by slugs and snails. They said, well, hostas are not without their problems in the Midwest, but it's deer that are obviously attacking them. So a much larger predator. But in the UK, because it's always really damp, we have a lot of problems with slugs and snails. Hostas really only work well in containers or where they're lifted above the ground. And I think, to be honest, a lot of people lost faith with hostas because they couldn't believe in them the fact that they could grow them. So there's really need to do a lot to kind of inject some interest into hosta again. But I really noticed during that tour of Minneapolis that you're allowing a lot of your hostas to flower and actually enjoying the beauty of the bloom as well. And that is something we don't do in the UK. So that adds another dimension to an already very useful garden plant. Maybe people need to be a little bit more patient. Maybe plant some sacrificial lettuce next to their hostas.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do y'all do the beer and a saucer trick for slugs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there a one particular hosta that has caught your eye lately?
1: Gosh, well, I'm very excited about the breeding and how that's developing. And I remember many years ago, there was a variety called Cherry Brandy that was one of the first to have the red in the stem. And there are now more varieties, such as a Fire Island, where the red is starting to get into the leaf. I think one day in a few years, we'll be looking at a red-leaved hosta, but... At the moment there's one that really gets me going which is white feather this is a very fascinating plant because in the spring when the hosta emerges it's completely white no chlorophyll there at all now the original white feather would then go a kind of mucky green kind of pale green color in the summer but last week i was at a trade show in holland and they tell me there's a white feather improved that is actually staying a better color In the summer. Well, no color at all because it stays white, (laughs) but it's an amazing hosta. And even, you know, they're so collectible, and people are starting to realize that in the UK, especially the little miniature ones as well, which I also love.
0: I just discovered those mini ones. I didn't even know those existed until Mm. about, well, probably six months ago.
1: Yeah, they're super cool.
0: Black has been a fashion basic for a while, but now it appears that that's creeping over into plant material. Can you talk about that? Well, black in terms
1: of flowers has been fascinating for many years, and I'm always selecting better black tulips, for example, or kind of a black uh, different fritillarias. But in terms of the foliage, I was really jealous and salivating when I saw Bailey Nurseries on your side of the pond release their first edition's eclipse. But hydrangea, with this dark foliage that stays dark all through the season, and in whatever growing conditions as well. That was a real, like, whoa. I'm waiting for that to come to the UK. Maybe maybe in two seasons we'll get that. But right now in Europe, there's another couple of really interesting black leaf plants that are already available. Wigelia electric love is gorgeous. It has a black leaf. Well, can we call it black? I think we really can, to be honest. It is a very, very dark leaf. And the flower... Wigelias have been worked on a lot over the last few years here in Europe, and the flower is almost getting large, trumpet-like, like a foxglove. Up-facing as well, which is very different to a Wojellia, the usual style. Furthermore, there's a new Calicarpa, which you guys probably have as well through Proven Winners, which is coming to Europe through Volkplant. and This is Calicarpa Pearl Glam, which I think is a really clever name. This has a dark foliage, so it's kind of like a dusky, kind of bronze-purple color. And interestingly, when I spoke to the seller of this variety on the Proven Winners stand, they said it actually goes to berry while the foliage is still on the plant. So not only has this got dark foliage, but it's also behaving in a very different way to give you such a different contrast to the usual berries on bare stems. So I'm really excited about those few black-leaf shrubs that we've got coming through.
0: Well, are those purple berries or the white berries? I believe it was purple.
1: Yeah, purple. Quite a smallish plant as well. I've done a lot of container work at some workshops in Japan over the years. They use calicarpa a lot, but they actually treat it with the psychocell chemical to keep it really short. So there you'll be planting up containers with calicarpa that are just one foot tall, which is kind of really crazy because they're completely in berry as well. It's a very interesting shrub, and I'm glad that shrub breeders have started to look at those as well.
0: What is a plant that you would like to see more of in the UK?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. I would like to see people growing more and more dahlias. And we're seeing that trend is really coming along as well. I think that could also spill over into gladioli. I think there's a lot of very interesting gladioli out there. Very nice for beginners. Very easy to grow as well. I feel on the whole, we don't give summer flowering bulbs enough love. We talk a lot about tulips, a lot about daffodils, but we don't ever really plant for summer. So gladioli is on that list. Lilies as well, oriental lilies, especially the lovely double flowered, the rose lilies that have come around recently, but also some of the lesser known summer bulbs like Spiraxis, Ixia, Tigridia. Tigridia is an amazing flower and it is so easy to grow as well. I think summer flowering bulbs is a real area that I'd like to see kind of being, not even developed more, but just kind of given a bit more of love by the public as well.
0: Would Lyriope fall into that category also?
1: Oh, absolutely. Lyriope, ah, oh, there was some new ones at a trade fair I was at recently. Monroe White is a really, really gorgeous one. Lyriope, I think we haven't really cottoned on to how useful this can be as a dry shade plant in the UK. And of course, it's got this really tough foliage, but then you've got the beauty of the flower in these kind of almost otherworldly colors as well. So I like this kind of textural type of gardens that we're seeing of course that means that textural gardens don't have to be just about foliage as well and that's where liriope kind of straddles the line
0: a little bit tell me how it straddles the line
1: liriope really straddles the line between being a foliage plant and flowering plant because it's got that kind of feeling of being a grass but it then has this flower that's actually full of color which you almost don't expect and it sits very well in municipal areas areas with high traffic you know this is great for beginner gardeners who might have to consider a different set of criteria. Like, is there a dog, you know, crawling over the garden? Is there cats laying in the border? Is there kids kicking a football around? These are all modern life considerations that we need to think about when recommending plants to people,
0: especially beginners. Yeah. What new plant are you obsessed with at the moment?
1: Um, I think a lot of people are obsessed with dahlias. And I'm so happy about this because when I was a kid, Dahlias were not fashionable at all. They were kind of in the same category as chrysanthemums. They were seen as real grandma plants. So I need chrysanthemums to have a revival in a few years. But at the moment, I'm really happy for dahlias. There are so many types. I was at the CNB trial in Holland a couple of weeks ago. And oh my gosh, you just wonder how they can keep coming up with different varieties. There's a sparkly octopus. This is like an anemone-flowered one with back-facing petals, almost like an aquilegia. You've also got a really nice anemone variety called Speech that also has stripes in it as well. It's really hard to describe these. They're really crazy. Copper Boy is a really nice pom-pom that looked like the most spherical of any dahlia I'd ever seen. Obviously, Dinner Plate Tartan is one of my favorite dinner plate ones with deep red and white striped flowers as well. Uh, Where else? Fimbriata's Ferncliff Illusion as well, Pinelands Pam. There are so many types out there, but also good selections in lower border types as well. The Labella series from Beacon Camp in Holland is a patio dahlia because we always think it's about border dahlias and floristry dahlias, but... If you're someone just on a balcony and you want that en- enjoyment of dahlias, then patio dahlias could be the, the only ones you can fit in that space as well. And they've got good, good stems, so you could still cut a few of those for a small vase from the patio or from a, a container on the terrace.
0: Why do you believe it's important to introduce new plants to the market every year?
1: I think new plants fulfill a lot of different reasons. And first of all, breeders are always looking to improve, and sometimes those improvements are not always visible. For example, I was at the Curley family. They breed a lot of new petunias and chrysanthemums in the UK just outside Cambridgeshire. I was there just last Friday. They've released a new range of fuchsias. It's some of the first fuchsias that have been bred for the last few years. And these look the same as the old ones, but actually they are easier to produce cool. They're more efficient in space, so it's kind of answering a lot of, uh, kind of growers' problems. But it might not be visible to me as a kind of product developer where I pick new plants because I like the look of them. So that's one reason. It could be because it flowers earlier. It's kind of off the bench a lot sooner. So all the stuff we don't see, it could be like with roses, disease resistance, for example, giving longevity, customer kind of satisfaction as well. But then outside of that, you've also got visible improvements. Maybe, for example, Buddleia in the UK would be a good example, where at Thompson Morgan we actively bred a sterile variety, which means it's not as invasive, but also dwarf as well. So kind of, you know, Buddleia, a great plant for wildlife, but a bit of a naughty boy in the garden, doesn't always behave itself, but this dwarf one, which is sterile, is then kind of almost like answering gardeners' uh, kind of wishes as well at the same time. So you've got kind of uh, the things behind the scenes... The solving the problems, then you've got the kind of fun, let's just make a pink chocolate cosmos kind of angle of it as well, kind of seeing what is in the genetics and seeing how we can develop that. So, with tuberous begonias, kind of bringing fragrance into that. Because, of course, this is new, this is a selling point. This is particularly great for TV sales or mail order catalogs because it really is like, whoa, I've never seen that before. I have to have it. You know, so there's a lot of different reasons that new plants are bred. I think the only ones that are not necessarily valid are kind of when there's a me too, when someone's already bred one, but then a company does a similar one. But then there's a reason they do that sometimes, because they may be trying to save cash, which obviously knocks on to the grower and the consumer, on the royalty fees by creating their own version of the one that is already out there with royalties on. So there's kind of so many different reasons that new plants could develop, but there's, it's a very important marketplace. It could be that it's a really unique plant that piques someone's interest in gardening and then they go on to grow more classical varieties or a wider range of plants as well. I've always been obsessed with bringing in people from very different corners of horticulture or even outside horticulture and it's not always as obvious as we think.
0: You're a keen observer of what's coming up in the garden world. How do you think gardening will change in the next five years?
1: Yeah, there was a very interesting display at a trade event in Holland recently talking about kind of plants that were for real wet conditions and plants that feel dry because we've got this real kind of change of climates in different places and needing to really choose the plant that fits the conditions perhaps a little bit better than we've done in the past. I was really interested to see a few of your rain gardens in the US when we went around some gardens in Minneapolis. Very interesting, great for runoff, kind of a lot of kind of bog-loving plants like labelia, such as that in there. But on the other hand of uh, all of this, we're looking at obviously more drought-tolerant plants. I think maybe the days of having petunias or kind of hungry plants in hanging baskets might be over a little bit. We might be starting to use trailing pelagoniums, which are obviously very drought-tolerant, and maybe mixing those up alongside sedums or maybe osteosperms or things that you wouldn't usually see in a hanging basket which is kind of where i think that market might move a little bit also i think with annuals as well i think there might be kind of like a few sustainability questions over why would you buy a marigold that flowers for just three months of the year when you could have a coreopsis tinctoria that maybe flowers for three years you know giving you six months each year in the summer so maybe there's a new range of bedding plants that will be uh used a little bit more widely that are almost like the bedding plants that you never have to pull out of the ground because they're doing the same every year. Because there's plenty of plants through modern breeding that now flower for five months of the year. You know, some of these new foxglove hybrids with isoplexis will flower for five months. Alstroemeria, the intercanture series from Holland is really cracking. And this is comparable to any bedding plant, but it'll flower every year. So I think the markets are changing in a few different ways. And of course, houseplants is kind of grew 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 kind of plateaued a bit but i think that's because the collectors think the house plants are only foliage plants they need to start collecting orchids flowering plants give a bit of love to the unique kalanchoe that are out there as well perhaps
0: <laughs> you appear to be stacking up many frequent flower miles on your worldwide gardening adventures to what extent do you see plants crossing over the borders to other markets I would
1: say in my kind of previous development career with Thompson & Morgan I didn't ever visit the Californian pack trials because I didn't feel it relevant because very often the same plants are launched in the US as in Europe at the same time obviously to kind of maximize on the marketing that is put together and and I felt that anything I would see extra is something that I probably couldn't grow in the UK so I was kind of okay with only seeing it in Europe so I did see a lot of duality with the varieties that were then released of course I'm consistently jealous that you guys can grow Cafferanthus, Caladium, Colocasia as well. But I think sometimes we're a little bit of a change in climate. Someone said to me at a trade show last week that Pharaoh's mask, Colocasia, could be grown in Northern Europe. So kind of like some of those uh, things are changing. So it could be maybe we have completely comparable ranges in a
0: couple of years' time. Who knows? Have you observed any common traits in gardeners on your travels?
1: Common traits in gardeners, I would say, this might blow your listeners' minds, but I think sometimes the vision of the garden you think is in a country is not how people really garden. Japan, for example, I've traveled there a lot. I've worked with Japanese companies. We all think a Japanese garden is really zen, really calm, lots of gravel, lots of aces. In reality, many Japanese gardens for normal people at home, you know, not showcase gardens, are kind of like beautiful chaos. We almost call this that like wabu-sabi, which is where you allow nature to kind of shape and change man-made objects. So they're a little bit kind of like, they let nature kind of have a hand in theirs. So very often they're kind of packed, almost kind of lots of pots everywhere. Sometimes out the front of the, the homes in the city, they have like a plant family. So maybe about 10 different pots and they kind of change that up from time to time, like a little kind of jigsaw piece almost. I think kind of Japanese gardens are a little bit more kind of developed and wild than we perhaps imagine and likewise I think English gardens you kind of you've got the classical cottage gardens but most people on a day-to-day basis wouldn't necessarily garden in that way they would garden with bedding plants a few solar lights maybe some gnomes you know so if you look at how people really garden they're kind of about making that area kind of like their little haven Almost, and there will be things around that will maybe seem a little bit chintzy to some people as well. So, I think kind of that's one of my learnings from kind of being spending time in lots and lots of different countries really over the years, not just as a tourist, but also kind of you know living, kind of being involved and immersed in the cultures as well. Did that answer your question or not? I'm not sure it did actually.
0: No, it probably didn't, but I think it was a good answer.
1: <laughs> it was a good answer, but I'm not sure it was <laughs> I think traits, uh, especially in UK, is more of a kind of uh, awareness and the media has really kind of took a real kind of hard line on like peat-free compost, for example, planting for pollinators as well. So I think kind of like even the everyday gardener has got that kind of more of a conscience when it comes to the choices they make in the garden now. And I'd say that is one of the traits that I'm kind of seeing, particularly in the UK, but not necessarily across Europe at the moment. So I would say, in terms of kind of environmental awareness, we're quite ahead in the UK, I would say, in terms of peat-free and kind of sustainability and and all of this. And uh, to that effect, I feel quite proud, to be honest with you.
0: What's an interesting way that you've seen on how to cultivate a new gardener?
1: I think during my freelance career, I have always wanted to recruit people from very different walks of life into gardening and I've touched on this briefly earlier so where uh, about six years ago when I moved freelance I put together a range of t-shirts that have printed the really rude cheeky plant names that are real but people kind of have a bit of a giggle at so soccer Coca confuser rubus cockburnianus and these are real plant names but people then that are outside of our usual horticultural world find this really then smutty and funny and kind of like but It might seem silly and frivolous, but this means I've got some extra eyes on what I'm doing in horticulture and growing. It might be some vegetables that you can't buy in the supermarket. You can only grow from seed or buy from mail order outlets. Maybe then I'm going to be showing something with miracle berries where you can, you know, chew on a lemon and it tastes sweet because of the miracle berry change. So novelties, I think novelties is a real gateway to bring people in from different walks of life that wouldn't usually consider even interacting with plants, let alone grow them. But once I've got them kind of recruited in that way, to get new people into garden is not always the obvious route. It's not always like, right, let's show you how to plant up a balcony planter. You've got you've to gotta kind of get them with something novel, which seems silly and throwaway, but it is the way. And then you cultivate them. But if you're trying to teach them too much very early, then it's just going to go way over their heads.
0: What do you wish people would do differently when designing and building their garden?
1: In the UK, there seems to be, and you see this with people moving into new homes, etc. There's almost this, uh, maybe you have this also in the US, but like, there's this real vision of how a garden will look. There's a lawn in the centre, maybe a pathway down one side, a border at the bottom. I don't understand why people assume this is how a garden needs to look. It's almost like uh, gardening by numbers. It puzzles me that people can't think outside of that because, you know, when I moved into the home I've got in Suffolk here in the countryside, it looked like that. It had a lawn, it had a path, it had a border. And I was like, well, no, I'm going to change this and have like a kind of patio in the middle surrounded with plants, no lawn at all, because there are different formats to how you can put together a garden. So it's kind of strange that people can't move outside of that a little bit. So I think kind of a nice movement might be to show people almost like identikit gardens, to, to show them different ways that they could actually create gardens. So almost have when someone moves into a new house, you almost have a choice of one, two, three, four or five different gardens. So then one maybe is that traditional one with the layout. Another one is one that is maybe meandering and kind of has got a lot of wildlife included there as well. But it's not giving people the choice. That's the thing. And also a big part of it, because my front garden at home in Suffolk, is pretty big and wild. It's great for wildlife, but the neighbours are so shocked because we're so conditioned to gardens being really neat and tidy. But just like when we were on the tour, Heidi's garden there with the edimentals and kind of all the ornamental veg, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it's like you have to kind of bust past what the neighbours think because they're going to think it's a jungle, whereas their neatly manicured places are not any good for wildlife. And at the end of the day, what actually looks more beautiful and kind of heavenly so yeah so it's really it's that kind of layout that really needs to change a little bit and to show people there are other options as well and probably options that are lower maintenance as well because having a garden with a border and a lawn is probably the highest maintenance garden you can get really why not have the whole whole garden as a border plant it with plants stuff it with plants and it kind of looks after itself
0: now, I've heard you say that you like to push the envelope or get outside the box as a gardener. How do you do that?
1: I always like to approach things from very different ways. So like when, when I launch plants or when I work on content with brands, you know, you're probably not going to see many other industry influencers that will dress up in a muscle outfit or a superhero mask. But, you know, recently I did this with the hydrangea paniculatus that I worked on in Holland because we wanted to show how strong the plants are, right? So how are you really going to do that? Are you Are going to do it in words? Are you going to take someone's word for it? You want to see the proof. So how are we going to prove this? We will emulate wind. So we have a leaf blower. We will emulate rain. So we had a strong hose. We will also emulate kind of wind. So that's why we're kind of punching it and kind of like moving, the, shaking the plant all around. And this is a way to really make content very different, very memorable, and also less kind of serious at the same time. So I always want to approach it from a very different angle, not only to be noticed, but also to to just put lighthearted on it. Because of course, there are many different people out there telling you how to water your orchids or how to prune them, etc. That all becomes samey. So I want to do something that is a little bit different out there as well. And my main motivation really is to have fun. And that's really what I do with that sort of content anyway. So even even before earning any money or any of that, I just want to have fun with my career and my life. So there you go.
0: (laughs) Now, where can we see that video?
1: So this video is in a recent reel, which is on Instagram. Instagram has got lots of lovely short form video now, like minute and a half maximum. You can get your message across and that kind of makes it a really nice challenge in order to engage people in that short space of time. Because as much as we don't want to admit it, people's attention spans are a lot shorter. So let's work with that and have fun with that as well. And, of course, you've got to get their attention quickly. And I I think a muscle outfit and a superhero mask is the way to do it.
0: (laughs) It it kept my attention. (laughs) Very well done. Uh, What garden myth would you like to smash?
1: What garden myth would I like to smash? Well, I think weeds. Weeds is obviously uh, an area for discussion because a weed is obviously something in the wrong place. And it really shocked me when... When I'm there and I'm like uh, looking at um, Ipamea quamoclit, this lovely ferny-leaved climber, and I'm like, I would dream to grow that, but you guys are like its weed. So it's all about weeds in different contexts. So I think kind of people's uh, the fact that a, that a weedy garden looks messy. I think that is a myth that we need to bust because a lot of weeds, in inverted commas, are great for pollinators. And the more plants that you plant in your garden, the less that you will have undesirable weeds as well, because actually the more plants you've got there, the denser the growth and kind of you're probably not going to get many of the kind of more invasive weed seeds actually settling down there because most of the soil is covered. So I would say, yeah, myths around weeds, really, and kind of their the judgment that they are subjected to. I think weeds as part of a border or part of a grass is kind of then almost wildflower territory. I think weeds, of course, amongst patio slabs or in graveled areas, that is the occasion when they are a weed to me. But when they're in a border, I'll work with it. And the most amazing display I saw at Columbine Hall in the UK last year was tulips planted amongst stinging nettles. Mm. And the shape of the tulip flower and the shape of the stinging nettle foliage was beautiful, honestly. So yeah, it's just about context. Changing our mindset... But well, also, not worrying about what the neighbours say.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and that's, that's the hardest part, actually.
0: <laughs> what is your earliest garden memory?
1: Uh, not necessarily a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> I remember growing a runner bean seed at school uh, down the side of a jam jar. I remember lifting and dividing iris with my grandma as well. Um, I remember the smell of chrysanthemums, tomato leaves. But my probably... I don't know if it's my earliest memory, but I remember growing a Tradescantia houseplant from a cutting at school and grew it on, potted it up, kind of so-and-so, and then I went to plant it into the garden at home. I don't know why I was planting a houseplant in the border, but never mind. <laughs> and, uh, and I actually stood on the plant, and I remember it was, I was so sad, I really cried about destroying this plant, and I was really sad for so long. Yeah, so that was my maybe my first memory, but certainly my saddest memory. Yeah. In early years. <laughs>
0: Why did you decide to pursue horticulture as a profession?
1: Uh, I wasn't sure I could do anything else. Um, <laughs> no. I think, uh, I think there's always one thing in your life that is your passion, almost like uh, well, you might call it a vocation. And if you actually make that your career as well, I think you're pretty lucky. And it's not, not that easy for everyone, you know. And I think for me, it was plants and horticulture, and it was very, very natural. I didn't really imagine anything else I could do or could want would want to do, actually. Yeah, even as a child, I was really that was the only thing I was really focusing on and thinking about. I do wonder though, like obviously growing up a lot with my grandparents, spend a lot of time with them. If they were interested in something else like cookery, would I now be a cook? Because I don't know if the things that your grandparents are in rub off on you, because you tend to spend a lot of relaxed time with them. It's different than being with your parents who are kind of, you know, you're more of an irritant to perhaps. But yeah, so I do wonder if things would have been different, but no, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to do anything else. And I'm really pleased at how this turned out. And, and like I said, I'm not not sure what else I could do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a funny garden story you could share with us?
1: I guess any funny story is probably linked to doing TV and QVC. And like, sometimes, obviously, we, we want to show a show sample. So you know, very often we'll make uh, a plant out of nothing just to show a kind of prop of how it will grow. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously always done in a a realistic way. But sometimes, you know, someone will walk up and it's like you completely created this plant out of nothing. And it's like amazing what we can then make from this. It's all about the shortcuts when it comes to TV, or maybe we planted up a border and everything's just dropped in five minutes before. I guess that's the whole illusion of any big uh, flower show like Chelsea as well. So, those stories are always quite funny because people don't just don't imagine you can do that with plants at all. So yeah, anything linked around that really, I would say. I guess also when plants surprise people as well, that's always a good thing. Maybe Venus flytrap. They're always very amazed when they realize the Venus flytrap doesn't only catch insects, but it can also count as well. That's always a pretty uh, shocking moment for people too.
0: How do they count?
1: Venus flytrap obviously is is looking to catch their prey. And inside, if you If you think about the pad, there's little tiny hairs, and those hairs need to be triggered twice in a 20-second period before the trap even thinks about closing. So it needs to know it's got a good meal. It's not just going to close for raindrops or leaf debris. Oh, okay. But once that's closed, it, it isn't really ready to eat the insect yet because it's waiting for the insect to move around a little bit and trigger those hairs five more times before it pushes the base together and makes a stomach. That way it knows it's got a decent meal and not just a tiny little fly in there. So, yeah, so that is how it can count as well. And that's probably even more interesting than the fact it eats insects, really. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Uh, I guess it digests it with enzymes or how does it
1: work? Yeah, yeah, because it just kind of pushes the base of the lobes together and then digests with the enzymes down there. Yeah. And they can reopen within maybe about a couple of months as well. And certainly if there's, if there's no bites there, then it is going to open and let out that tiny insect that is insignificant meal.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer?
1: Very good question. I would say kind of obviously in my early years, like my grandma, because I would have uh, learned a lot of stuff from her. Sadly, she hasn't been around since I'd been at the end of school, really. So she won't have seen any of my career and how that's developed. But I would say... I don't mean this to sound kind of self-centered, but I say my own influence is myself in a way because I tend not to use too much time worrying about what other people are doing because I think you can get very caught up on, you know, seeing other people as competitors or rivals and you don't entirely focus on what you're doing yourself. So I think kind of, I influence myself because I kind of have ideas, put them into action. Yeah, my only real marker is myself. And I think that's a much safer way to approach things a little bit as well. And then you kind of just, you let your creativity flourish because then you're not worried about whether it will be accepted or someone's already done it or someone's about to do it or steal your idea or this, this and this. Maybe an odd answer, but it's one that uh, feels true to me. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I can see that. What is your most valuable garden mistake?
1: I would say I'm still learning all the time with my uh, with my garden at home in Suffolk because I've only really built this in the last couple of years and I I hadn't had a garden for many years because I'd been traveling around. So I really hadn't had much to show for what I do and to kind of really to then design a garden and make sure it is then giving you interest in many months of the year has been kind of a little bit challenging because there's certain moments where there's just there's so many plants but there's not much actual color and so kind of I think through having my own kind of palette and kind of easel to work on that's how I've kind of then learned through what what I may or may not be doing wrong and how I then can advise other people as well so I think you need to to see it in your own garden. And also, obviously, that fills over into trialing plants, looking at new plants as well, seeing them up close and kind of how they perform through the seasons and how they perform, you know, as a good garden plant is really important to see up close too.
0: What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening?
1: I've learned that it's a really nice industry to work in. I don't know if you have this camaraderie in other industries because we're dealing with a a really nice product at the end of the day it's calming it's it's beautiful it does a lot it keeps changing it keeps evolving as well uh maybe part of the difficulties is also that the product keeps evolving so try and get a plant ready for a live show on a certain date that's actually quite difficult as well so kind of yeah so i've kind of learned that it is really an interesting very varied industry it's not as simple as people seem the career options are not as basic as people might imagine when they kind of approach it. So not everyone's a landscape gardener. There's a lot of different jobs, like writing copy for labels, presenting on TV, kind of developing things. It's kind of, there's so much involved. And I think it's a magical industry and it's really kind of homely and friendly as well. And I, I don't know if you get that in the plumbing industry, for example, or IT. What do you
0: reckon? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have...
1: Not always got enough color. I also have an Acer that has died, but it took a long time to die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one lesson that I did learn, actually, with planting larger plants in the garden. I wanted to have some instant privacy at the bottom of the garden, so I bought some quite big Portuguese laurel, Prunus lusitanica, And I thought by planting big, I'm going to get that instant effect. But actually, they were so big, it took them almost two years for the root balls to settle in, for them to feel comfortable. So I would literally be looking at these plants every day, like just grow. Are you going to grow there? And the next season, I'd be like, are you going to grow yet or not? And they literally did nothing for two whole years. <laughs> and so that is a real lesson that I've learned in recent years as well. Yeah. Bigger is not always better for that.
0: <laughs> what are your future plans for your garden?
1: I really, I need to make sure there's more color coming through the seasons. But also, I, my favorite season is spring. So shortly, I'll be planting lots of autumn-planted, spring-flowering bulbs. Uh, I like—I love the Kirkenhof in Holland. You know the big bulb garden. So it would be really, really cool to kind of emulate that in my own garden. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to planting a lot more kind of bulbs, etc. But also kind of making sure there's more colour to take me through the year. Maybe more evergreen shrubs as well. I quite like that kind of palette and that kind of texture that they tend to give as well. But of course. Also, there's a fine line there with wanting to please pollinators as well. But I believe a garden evolves and it keeps changing anyway. And I'm not afraid to kind of edit it from time to time as well.
0: Do you have a plant in your garden that you're in love with this week?
1: Definitely not the Acer, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) I would say just some of these colorful shrubs. Like I got the Fatinia Pink Crispy. This is looking lovely in a shady corner. Also, I'm a big fan. It's very basic, but pittosporum. I love these kind of textural plants. And I was at a nursery in Holland a couple of weeks ago where they're looking at box alternatives. And a lot of those are things like pittosporum, abelia, kind of a lot of things you wouldn't usually expect. And I I love that kind of look as well. So yeah, kind of a few of those things that are looking good. And, and the roses are really good. I've got some roses from Denmark, a lovely clear crystal white variety that has a beautiful layered fruity and kind of spicy fragrance
0: all in one. Where do you purchase your botanical shirts? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, I've got a few of my own range that have got different slogans on, but in terms of like my flowery shirts, it's really whenever I see one that pops up in the range and then I'm like, I have to have it or very often because I must be so predictable, people buy them for me.
0: (laughs) Michael, tell us how people may connect with you.
1: I'm available on Instagram and uh, Twitter, Mr. Underscore Plant Geek. I've also got a very comprehensive website, MrPlantGeek.com. And recently, I've moved into the Substack Arena. So I've got a New Plants News
0: regular newsletter over there, too. This has been Episode 127, Mr. Plant Geek's Botanical Adventures, with Michael Perry. Thank you, Michael. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.